We're in our second week of this fall sermon series, and every time I would say that when I was practicing, my phone would beep because it thought I was saying, hey Siri. (laughs) The sermon series is Love Over Fear, and the series is built around themes and passages from Scripture uh, as they arise out of uh, what it means to love our enemies in the, the book that we're reading in conjunction with this. Dan White Jr.'s Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. It's an important and timely topic for our nation, for our congregation, for our community, uh, and for the church at large. For those who are reading along with us this morning, we're drawing from chapter 1 of the book, The Way Fear Works, and our passage for reflection you just heard read was from Mark 9, verses 38 to 40. I remember many years ago, too many I'm afraid, I saw the late Keith Green in concert, And in the middle of the concert, um, he preached a sermon. So when you walked into the hall, there was a piano and a microphone. That's all he ever used. And then over here, there was a pulpit. And I thought, well, this will be unlike any other contemporary Christian music concert I've ever attended. He sang for a while, then he went over to the pulpit, and he preached. And he said something that night in that sermon that I have never forgotten. It was most certainly not the main point of the sermon, but I have never forgotten. It stayed with me. He talked about Jesus He talked about his disciples, and he referred to Jesus' disciples as 12 numbskulls. Twelve numbskulls, like I said, was not the main point in the sermon, but it stayed with me. Keith Green's observation about the sometimes dim-witted nature of the disciples is evident in places like our passage this morning from Mark 9. And what they don't get in chapter 9, or this part of chapter 9 in part, is how fear is at work in their lives and how they can overcome it. Right after the transfiguration, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain. They return to the other disciples. And when they get to the other disciples, they find a large crowd. And the teachers of the law are with them, and they're debating something. And Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? And a man comes and says, my son, my son is uh, tortured by an evil spirit and your disciples, your disciples could not cast it out. So after rebuking uh, his disciples, his dim-witted disciples, for not having the faith to do this, Jesus then takes care of it, casts the spirit out, and then they move on. And along the way, however, the disciples get into another argument, this time with one another, about which one of them is the greatest. Which one of them is the greatest? And When Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? They're embarrassed or afraid to tell him. He knows. Verse 35 of Mark 9. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. According to ancient sources, questions about who was the greatest, who held the highest rank in society, were everywhere in that culture, in that society, deeply embedded into the culture of the day. And from what we know, these kinds of discussions took place all the time around family meals and religious meetings and political meetings. They were deemed important matters for that society. But the way of Jesus is different, and so he enacts a parable in their midst. Verse 36, he took a little child who he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Look, Jesus says, trying to be the greatest is not what this is all about. Take your cue from this little child. She has nothing. 
She has no power. She does not even understand the concept. She doesn't pretend to be anything. Be like her. Now, the part that we miss is that while our documents in the New Testament were handed down to us in ancient Greek, and we translate them, Jesus and his disciples would not have spoken Greek. They would have spoken Aramaic. And the cool thing is, in Aramaic, the word for servant and the word for child is the same word. In Aramaic, the word for servant and the word for child is the same word. Both servants and children had little to no standing in society, and they did not pretend to have standing in society. They never argued about who was the greatest. They were both, in a way, property. So Jesus is saying, like this child-slash-servant, one who simply, be like this, one who simply has no concerns to ask such questions of rank or social standing or greatness. Likewise, my followers are about serving one another and serving others, not pursuing greatness. This is what Jesus is saying. In fact, he says, in order to be truly great, you must become a servant of one another and of all. And then Jesus takes this image of, the, of true discipleship further. Whoever welcomes one of these little children slash servants in my name welcomes me. To be sent by Jesus is to be sent as a servant, as one with no status or power, as one who does not seek power, who does not seek to control other people or to be greater than others. When we go into the world and among one another as servants and as children sent by Jesus, we truly represent Jesus. When we go as servants and children who are sent by Jesus, we truly represent Jesus. We are Jesus. So much so that to welcome one of us is to welcome Jesus, and to welcome Jesus is to welcome the Father God. But John interrupts. Their numb scullery is not yet over. He reports to Jesus that he and the other disciples have come across someone claiming to represent Jesus, but there's a problem He's not one of us. Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. There are so many things wrong with this statement. First, John addresses Jesus as teacher, which may sound fine to us, but the reality is in the Gospel of Mark, the label teacher for Jesus is usually only spoken by outsiders, people who don't get Jesus and don't understand what he's about. This is a clue to let us know that the disciple John is not acting like a disciple here. He's not following Jesus as well as he thinks he is. And by trying to stop this unknown exorcist from casting out demons, John and the others have fallen into the temptation, once again, of thinking they were greater than this other unnamed follower of Jesus. Who's the greatest? We are. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, John says, and we told him to Stop, because he was not one of us. More literally, John says, we told him to stop because he was not following us. He was not following us. The same word that is used in the rest of the Gospels whenever the disciples leave everything and follow Jesus. Only there's a difference. The issue for John wasn't that this person wasn't following Jesus, 
The issue was this person wasn't following us. He wasn't doing things or believing things our way. He wasn't authorized to do these things. Put another way, we are greater and more important than he is, so we tried to stop him. One of the points that Dan White Jr. makes in Love Over Fear is that fear is opposed to love. Fear is opposed to love. He writes this, quote, Many of us cuddle and coddle fear because it, makes more, it just makes more sense than the generous, open posture of love. We believe love makes us vulnerable to harm while fear protects us. Love compels us toward people. Fear creates a buffer. Love causes us to lean in and listen. Fear tells us we don't need to hear anymore. Fear offers something in return, a sense of control and safety, placing our wants, our needs, our anxieties at the center of importance. It's not that fear doesn't have its place. It does. Fear is important. When there is genuine danger coming your way, fear is a good thing. Run or fight, whatever you have to do. But as Dan White says, fear can be like a forest fire in California when we welcome it unimpeded into our lives. And I hope we all know now, what a forest fire can do. On several occasions, Jesus asked the question of the disciples of the crowds, why were you so afraid? Why were you afraid? So it seems to me that Jesus agrees that fear is at the root of something that needs to be dealt with. If love is to reign supreme in our lives as servants of Jesus, fear must be rooted out. Fear must be rooted out. And those in the advertising world, to say nothing of those in the political world, know that this is exactly how fear works. Fear is a far better motivator than love, unfortunately. Both Republicans and Democrats regularly consult a study that was done in the early 2000s on the use of terror as a bit of a guidebook when they write their political ads and their sound bites. Try listening to some political commercials in the coming weeks, your party and the other party, and see if you can hear the code words they use that cause you to want to fear what will happen if the other person wins. Both parties do it. How are they trying to get you to buy into something using fear-based code words, fear-inducing words? Rally people to action, the study shows. And social media platforms know this well. But words that speak of hope and goodness and beauty and unity sadly do not motivate us to action. And all of this begs the the question, if fear is the thing that is driving John to say these things in Mark 9, what is he so afraid of? What is he so afraid of? Just a few verses back, remember the disciples were not able to drive out a spirit or a demon, and now someone else is able to do so. What is John afraid of? Maybe he's afraid people will leave his church and go to another one. Maybe he's afraid financial support will shift from the group that can't drive demons out to the group that can, that this new show in town will surpass his in popularity. Now, suppose fear can come from a lot of things, but I really think that it is fair to suggest, as Dan White does in this chapter, that scarcity, scarcity is the prime culprit. A scarcity mindset is at the root of a lot of our fear. We fear that we will not have enough of something, or 
what we need of something, be it food or, or love or money or acceptance or security. What kind of answers would we come up with, I wonder, if we were to notice whenever we feel anger or hate towards someone or something that's going on, and we simply asked ourselves, what is the potential loss or scarcity that is fueling my fear in this situation or with this particular person? What potential loss or scarcity is fueling my fear in this situation or with this particular person? What am I so afraid of? Step back, what am I so afraid of? A scarcity mindset is in play in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, convinces them that they will not die if they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will not certainly die, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open, you're going to be like God, you're going to know good and evil. And so let's put the question to the man and the woman in the garden. What were they afraid of? What made them give in to the temptation? Where did scarcity take hold of their imagination and their hearts and cast doubt upon their trust in their Creator? They succumbed to the temptation of the serpent because they were afraid that what God had given them in the garden and in their relationships with Him would not be enough for them to survive and to thrive and to flourish in the world. They wanted more. They wanted to be like God then perhaps they thought if they were like God, they wouldn't miss out on anything. They didn't have to worry about anything. They, they would have everything they needed. We, we can't trust God to provide for us, they may have thought. So they took matters into their own, own hands. And so that has now been the pattern down through the years ever since that point. We rebel against God because we don't trust God to care for us or we don't know that God loves us, that God is for us. And so we... We're afraid we're, gonna, we're not going to have enough, and so we make ourselves into our own private gods. Once we have it all, we think, once I have it all, I won't need anything else. I'll have everything I need, except we won't. In Mark 9, when the disciples say they tried to stop the man from driving out demons, Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, if they are driving out demons in Jesus' name, they are not against Him. They are for Him, and they are for His purposes. They are true followers of Jesus, even if they do it differently than the original 12 disciples did it. Even if they do not have official authorization. Fear and scarcity have no place here, Jesus might have said. Put your jealousy away. His whole point was that even if those who are doing these things aren't one of us, they aren't part of our group, if what they are doing moves the kingdom of God forward and expands its impact in the world, leave them be. For the real issue isn't or shouldn't be whether or not someone is for or against us, but whether or not they are for or against Jesus. That should be the issue. It's pretty clear from Jesus' point of view that even if they are against Jesus, that does not excuse our divisive, exclusive, or hateful behavior toward our enemies. In his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So often we take that verse out of context. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect is perfect. The perfection Jesus commands here is perfection in loving our enemies. The perfection Jesus commands here is perfection in love of our enemies. This is why Dallas Willard has said that the litmus test of true Christian spiritual maturity is our ability to spontaneously love our enemies. The true litmus test of Christian spiritual maturity is our ability to spontaneously love our enemies. Whoever is not against us is for us, Jesus says. There's no us in them. There's only us for them. Or as you two puts it in their song, Invisible, there is no them, there is no them, there's only us. Or in an older song by Gunger, Us for Them, we we get a sense of not only how we should live in the midst of a culture of fear and us against them, but where, where we are to look for our inspiration and our energy to live differently, to swim against the tide of polarization and exclusion. We look to the face of Christ. We turn our eyes on Jesus. Here's some of the lyrics from the song. When the lines are drawn, when you're in or out, when it's us or them and we shame the doubt, it is all a lie. All we ever need is love. There's no need to shed more blood. Look upon the cross. Look upon the cross. See the face of Christ. See the mercy in His eyes. Every valley shall be lifted high. Now our enemies are blessed. The heavy laden rest. For His judgment is love. His judgment is love. When the battle lines are drawn between us and them, what do you do? What do many of us do? We prepare to fight. We prepare to take sides. We check our ammo. We make sure our opinions and our anger are locked and loaded. Ah, but what does Jesus do? How does Jesus deal with those who are truly against him? I was in a book study several years ago. I'll just name it. It was in this church. I was in a book study in this church several years ago when the discussion came up about how we should be a part of the culture wars. And if you listened to me last week, you know I can't stand the culture wars. And so there's quite a heated discussion. How are we supposed to act in the middle of this time when the government is out to get us to take away our rights? We need to go to battle. But I look at Jesus. I look at Jesus and the world into which he was born. His country, his people were occupied by a foreign army. It was as if they were in exile in their own country. Going all the way back to Jesus' birth, when word got out that a new king had been born, the empire, the empire had all the little boys two years and under put to death. It doesn't get any more hostile than that, friends. And we want to complain because Starbucks won't say Merry Christmas. Give me a break. And what did Jesus do in the midst of one of the most us-against-them us moments in history? The New Testament applies these words from Isaiah 53 to Jesus and answered the question. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. What did Jesus do in his ultimate us-against-them moment? He took us or them and he turned it into us for them. He took us or them and turned it into us for them. He gave his life for you and me and every enemy we have ever had or will ever have. And he died with words of forgiveness on his lips. We want to fight. We want to get mad. But the truth is, the crucifixion of Christ on the cross is the purest, the ultimate expression of God's love we have ever seen. And it doesn't look anything like a fight. Jesus taught us how to love our enemies and how to love our sisters and brothers who may not do everything the same way we do. Those who may be tempted to say, sorry, You're not one of us. Look upon the cross. See the face of Christ. See the mercy in his eyes. Every valley shall be lifted high. Now our enemies are blessed. The heavy laden rest, for his judgment is love. His judgment is love. So in addition to the questions for reflection and discussion that we have in our Bible app live event each week, I want to invite you to uh, to respond to this good news that we we celebrated last week, we'll celebrate this whole series, and that is this, while we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. I invite you to spend, uh, to respond to this good news by spending time in prayer this week with this question on your heart. Ask of yourself, invite God's spirit to help you see the deepest answer to this question. When I look upon the words and lives of those who trouble me, my enemies, and I am tempted toward anger or hatred, what am I afraid of? Something happens this week that makes you angry or makes you feel hateful toward someone. Ask this question. When I look upon the words and lives of those who trouble me and I am tempted toward anger or hatred, what am I afraid of? And then once again, we remind you to spend time prayerfully reflecting on the power narrative we've taught you on several occasions. Would you say it with me? I am one in whom Christ dwells. Would you pray with me as we close? God, help us to look upon the cross this day and every day. Forgive us. Forgive me. When I'm hateful to my neighbors, to my enemies, teach us how to love. Don't give up on us. 
Meet us, we pray, God, and may you receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.